know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. As the global pandemic continues to raise questions about the future and stability of the job and internship market, 1050 Bascom is reaching out to successful political science grads to help us navigate these uncertain times. Today, we are excited to have Amy Bogost, a civil rights lawyer at Bogost Law, LLC. Amy, a political science and history UW-Madison grad, received her law degree from Chicago-Kent College of Law and worked in civil law in Seattle, Washington, and California before moving back to Madison, Wisconsin. Amy has most recently focused her practice in the area of federal Title IX representation of victims of sensitive crimes. Amy has also started a pro bono training for attorneys to help aid survivors of sexual assault on campuses During the grievance process, through the Southwest Center for Law and Policy, she has also provided training on implementation of Title IX within tribal colleges and has taught at the National Tribal Trial College, co-sponsored and located at the University of Wisconsin Law School. We are grateful for the opportunity to talk to Amy about her time at UW-Madison, her focus on civil rights, and Title IX along with any insights she might have for students interested in pursuing a similar career path. Thank you so much for joining us on 1050 Bascom today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my privilege to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Well, we're just super happy to have you. So I want to start broadly and talk about your start, if you will, in choosing a major and subsequent career path that spans both the private and public sector. What was your thinking as a major in terms of the job market and professional life after college? And maybe with that, share with us a little bit of your professional narrative or career path from undergraduate at UW to a legal career. So um, I began the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's a rather dull beginning. I grew up in Madison. My family lived in Los Angeles and moved back to Wisconsin And it was always, what were you going to do with this degree? And back in that day, it was the type of thing where, yeah, just put your application in, you'll be accepted. And we, most of us that went to high school back then didn't really have any other options due to financial constraints, but University of Wisconsin, but we knew that that was an incredible opportunity to go to this world-class university. And so I was really excited. I was Um, My siblings had all gone and I was really looking forward to it. As far as what was I going to major in, I really had no idea. It was kind of process of elimination. I knew that I, I loved politics and I grew up in a family that came from a long line of social activists. My grandparents came over from Eastern Europe as refugees and fought a lot for their rights in this place, in this country. So They had always been activists and my mother had me organizing for political campaigns. I remember the first memory I have is I was six being chased down the street by a a barking dog when I was trying to deliver pamphlets. So I think it was ingrained in me and not really knowing that, but I totally was geared toward some kind of, um, you know, political studies. 
so I had heard about the political science department. My brother, my older brother is actually at the university and he never talked to me about it, but I was fascinated by what he was studying. So as a freshman in, at the university, my fir- very first class was a class taught by Professor Booth Fowler, who's a very well-known political philosopher. And I remember the first day of class, actually from the get-go, I was enthralled. I don't know you've, if you've ever had the luxury of hearing any of Professor Fowler's lectures online, or he immediately engaged the students. And I kind of felt in that class, I think it was political philosophy. I can't even remember the title of it, but it was just, I could not stop listening and hanging on every word that he said. Things that I had never thought about. And he forced us to go beyond any intellectual capacity that I thought I had. And it just was really, you know, at that time, I didn't know I was going to be a political science major, but he totally was one of the, the primary reasons why I decided to major in political science. And the department, which I know is still extremely well-recognized throughout the world, I didn't know at the time that I was part of such an amazing program at the University of Wisconsin. But growing up in Madison, in a world where, um, not that I didn't have a great public education because I did. I had always wanted to get out of Madison and travel the world. And I was a bit disappointed that I had to attend the University of Wisconsin. I fantasized about, you know, going to the East Coast or somewhere in California. But having had the advantage of being at this place where I could propel myself into different worlds and different places through these classes was really amazing to me opened up my whole idea of what I felt the world should be. And it was the reason why I was studying political science that I also decided to take history courses. I felt I really had lacked in that background. You know, a lot of the perspectives that poli-sci professors were talking about, I didn't, I felt like I needed more to understand it. So I started taking a lot of history classes and I know it's common among political science majors to kind of at least dabble in history and the history department at University of Wisconsin, again, incredible. So my goal, I kept taking all sorts of things. I remember my advisor saying, maybe you should try to kind of like, you know, streamline it a little bit. But I felt like really honestly, um, not to be too uh, silly, but I felt like I was a kid in a candy shop all the time. Like, oh my God, I have to graduate and I want to take more. There was a professor of history, Harvey Goldberg, who at the time was a total celebrity on campus. And I was so fortunate to be, have been taken. I took some of his lectures. People would line up in the back to hear. They weren't even enrolled in his class. But there were so many professors, numerous that I could mention, that really were pivotal in my desire to continue on in the role of trying to do something in the line of social justice or continue my desire with political campaigning. And when I graduated, I was so filled with so many things I wanted to do, I I decided to take time off. So that's what I did. And I know that having that solid background of my undergraduate education at University of Wisconsin, it was interesting because at the time looking back, I really felt like, okay, I can really do a lot of things and I'm going to take time off. And I felt really secure at the time. This was the the 80s. Seems like, you know, it was a long time ago. 
And I felt like I had tons of opportunities, but I needed a break to kind of get my feet on the ground and figure out what I was going to do next. So should I just keep going and telling you? Oh, yeah. I was I was going to ask next, like what, what drew you then to study law and what drew you to study in particular civil rights? So... I was the youngest of four children um, in a family. My father had started university. He was on the GI Bill. He's actually still alive, a World War II veteran. And his dream was to go to college and be a, a TV anchorman, broadcaster, radio broadcaster. He came home from the war and he was able to go to UCLA at the time, but he was called home. So for him, it was so important for all of his children to be educated. And I was the youngest of four and he was fascinated by the law. And I think he manipulated me as the youngest because no one else would listen to him. That being a lawyer, especially a women lawyer, was really such a privilege in this country, something that you could take and do anything with but really have an impact and leave an imprint on this country, on our society. For him, it was really a calling. And I didn't know growing up, but he really did a great job at manipulating me. So, but, I, you know, it, it, it made sense because I always had an interest in the rights of others. And I was always fascinated in having conversations with him, especially, you know, I was pretty little during the Vietnam War, but we talked a lot about it. And my mother had actually gone back to school during the Vietnam War when things are really taking place on this campus. So I was he heavily influenced by that. So when I graduated, though, I thought, why do I want to go to law school? That's so much money and so much time. I'm going to just take a few years on and see if I can figure out anything else to do. And I had a secret desire to maybe go back to graduate school, get my doctorate. And I remember one day I had to take a cab somewhere. I think it was in Chicago. And the cab driver started talking to me and he had just gotten his doctorate in political science. And he totally talked me out of it. He said, I am now a cab driver. I'm trying to get a position somewhere and go to law school. So um, I got a job to kind of get, save some money. I, my first job out of law school was working for a new legislator at the time in the Wisconsin Assembly named Tom Barrett. And I was his first legislative aide and he went to law school. So I was trying to have him talk me out of going to law school, but he was the one that finally said, just go to law school. Everything you're talking about, if you have a law degree, you can go and build upon that and really use it for what you want to do. So, so begrudgingly, I took the LSAT and I still to this day don't really understand the connection between the LSAT and, and the admissions to law school. I'm waiting for someone to explain it to me. I was hoping to get some financial help, scholarship money. So I ended up at Chicago Kent and spent three, actually two and a half years in law school there. And at the time I was trying to parlay that into working for some type of civil rights firm. And I was really lucky enough while in law school to get a job with James Montgomery, who was corporate counsel under Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago. And Mr. Montgomery was really well known for civil rights. He 
represented a lot of the Black Panthers during the 70s and then worked under Harold Washington. He was a criminal defense lawyer, but his niche was really something called Section 1983 cases, which is a federal statute that basically pierces the veil of police and civil servants when they do wrong and violate the law, holds them accountable. So I clerked for him and then um, worked for the firm. I graduated a semester early and then worked for the firm and really fell in love with civil rights and, and social justice law. So that's how I got to law school, I guess. I think that your journey kind of touches on a lot of the similar themes that a lot of people who are Adam and my age are dealing with in terms of deciding to go to law school. You know, on one hand, it's a huge commitment in terms of both time and money. And there seems to be a lot of outside pressure to to pursue that kind of a thing. But at the same time, it is kind of the means or the tools, the trade of a lot of things that are involved in political science or political activism. And at the end of the day, it seems like a very challenging, but definitely rewarding and maybe even fulfilling pursuit. So what advice would you give to students considering going to law school? And additionally, could you talk about your view of gap years as well? You mentioned how you took a couple of years. Could you just give just a little bit, just your general advice on students considering the law school decision and also how maybe taking a gap year or two would play into that? Sure. So that is a really good question because I've thought a lot about this, having my own children and one of them had a desire to go to law school. And over the last several years, I've done my best to try to talk people out of going to law school. And my son, um, who's currently in law school, I tried to talk him out of it. And he posed the question to me, what is this with you trying to talk everyone out of law school? And I thought about it. And I thought, well, it's a huge expense. And I felt like there are a lot of things that with an undergraduate degree, you could do just as well. But I think that what he was getting at is that I do enjoy what I do. And the problem was that I didn't love law school, but I loved what I could do with my law degree. So I've reworked my advice. And I think that what's really important, because when I went, it was expensive, but now it's such an enormous um, expense. When I went, I I felt like a little bit lost as an undergraduate here. It may be shocking, but this was the 80s. My advisor said to me, you really don't want to go to law school. You're going to get married. You're going to move on. You're going to have kids. You don't have time for that. Because as a lawyer, you need to, you know, be ready to put everything aside. And and the practice of law is a calling where it's, you know, basically 24-7. And that had been the experience with a lot of you know, law school graduates of that time, all working for firms. So back to the advice, what I would say is if you're considering law school, I think it's really important to have some idea of what you want to do with this degree. I mean, it's important to kind of shape your undergraduate degree if you're looking toward law school, but it's important to kind of have a sense of, okay, I have a law degree. Do I want to you know, is it my di- my strong desire to work with big law? Go into the big law firm. Am I motivated by the potential economic advantage of that? Am I motivated because I think it'd be great to be a litigator and go have some trial experience and also 
you know, eventually work my rear end off to be a partner and be a part of a big firm or even a medium-sized firm? Am I that type of person that really wants to have delayed gratification going into some of these big firms? Or do I want it because I feel like I, it's a, you know, a power play where I want to go into, you know, some kind of nonprofit world, but having a law degree will propel me quicker. You know, there's a, many things that you can do with a law degree, you know, work in the nonprofit sector, work in the big firms, work for government. But I think it's just really essential that you kind of have some kind idea of what you want to do with that degree. And does it really benefit your path that you're thinking about taking? And now saying all that, we, you know, we always change, right? Coming in as a freshman, the statistics are what 70 or 80% of us change our majors within the first year. It's hard to know. You're young, you don't have experience, you don't have the work experience to know. But I think if it excites you, you know, if you imagine yourself in law school and the study of law can be rather dull the first year, you know, to get the basics. But if you kind of envision yourself there and get the sense that, okay, this is kind of what I want to do with it, just have some vision, then maybe law school is the right path. But I would definitely explore, you know, if there are other routes of graduate schools, because I think a lot of people go to grad to law school and maybe the MBA would have been a better option because it's only a two year and it is quite expensive. But, you know, I think it's just important to think about all those things before you enter in. And as far as gap years, I am all for gap years. In fact, I wish we all had a gap year between high school and college, because I think so much of, a, of our education, which is really important, is learning just who we are and what we want to do, which I think a gap year would, would also help. But after college, I think it's really important. I think university is really an immense growing period for all of us and a little bit of time to kind of absorb what you just went through in the four years, I think is really important. And you may come away after a year of a gap year or two years or three years saying, oh, wait, I don't want to do that. I've gotten a taste of this or a taste of that. And I'd much rather be a community organizer and, and run for office than going to law school. So I really think my time at the Capitol was really essential. I also traveled Back then, it was really cheap to travel, and I took about a year off and and went to Europe and, you know, took the train everywhere and saw as much as I could, and I learned a lot about myself. So I, I think it's really, really essential, if you can, to take time off and, and just try to reflect, and, and a lot of us of course, financially need to start stockpiling some financial resources too for law school. Well, on that, something you alluded to is kind of that it's good if you're thinking about going into law to maybe have an idea of an area of the law or some kind of practice that you might be interested in. And we know that a lot of your most recent work is in the practice area of Title IX, representation of victims of sensitive crimes. So, a lot of our listeners have a broad sense of Title IX's history and implications for college campuses, but could you tell us about this law, its importance, and the work you do in helping students, staff, faculty, and attorneys in navigating these issues on campuses? Sure. 
So it's interesting about Title IX because I sort of fell into it. And I had always been working in areas of social justice, um, but because I did move around quite a bit, I ended up taking four bars. <laughs> I practiced in things that were, when I was living in California, and my kids were little, I didn't have the luxury of really doing what I wanted. So when I moved back to Wisconsin, I was trying to volunteer as much as possible, which is a really good thing to do while you're trying to do and get paid for what you want to do. So someone asked me, they approached me and said, you know, people on campus that are being sexually assaulted are going through the Title IX process and they don't have any representation. Would you be interested? And honestly, this is a while ago. I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. So another lesson, by the way, is that you'll see as you get out there in your career path, if you choose to go to law school, whatever you choose to do, never say no if you think you might be interested in something. You just, as you say, you learn as you go. And I certainly did that. So Title IX, we all are very aware of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s. And a lot of the um, the actors in that were women that paved the way for all of us that worked really hard during the civil rights movement. And in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed. But what's really interesting about that is the, the word sex or gender is not anywhere in there to be found. And I know that even like, I think it was a congressman from Virginia tried to add that in as an amendment and it was quickly turned down, like kind of laughable. And we know during the sixties, it was really uh, a lot of enormous strides were made in title six came along um, for race discrimination, title seven for employment. The word sex actually was added into title seven for employment discrimination. But it wasn't until 1972 that Title IX came along. And that was really a breakthrough when at first it was basically what was said is that sex discrimination in federal institutions will not be allowed. And a lot of us think Title IX, we think of sports and sports equality in colleges, but it is much more than that. It was actually a college administrator in the 1970s that realized one day that she was being paid several thousand dollars less than her subordinates. And so she prompted legislation to get passed that added into Title IX that it not only has to do with sports, but it has to do with any kind of sex discrimination, gender discrimination on college campuses. And it, it, it took a long time though, to kind of progress to where we are today. It took over 20 years to kind of see with passage of legal cases in the Supreme Court, what we now sort of know as Title IX, but as recent newsworthy events that have taken place from Betsy DeVos, we know it's ever evolving or devolving, I should say, from the latest. So very briefly, Title IX, it is really tries to prevent discrimination on any school, so any place of education, kindergarten through university and beyond, that receives a penny of federal funding cannot discriminate on the base of sex and gender. And it's interesting because if you look at kindergarten through high school, they're still in the dark ages. Universities and colleges are a little more in the forefront of Title IX. We have Title IX offices and we have staff that hear complaints of sexual harassment, sexual assault, 
And we are trying to further those rights, but it is a very slow process. It is a very slow process and very difficult. So my role in all of this has been to represent people that bring complaints on college campuses through the complaint process all the way through the hearing process and beyond. Parallel to that is that when you go through any type of sexual harassment, sexual assault, you are supposed to, through the university, have accommodations if needed. So for example, if you are a victim of a sexual assault and you are having a really difficult time going to your classes, the university is supposed to provide you with accommodations and help you through the system. It is by no means a great system. We have a long way to go. And of course, there's been pushback recently with the new Betsy DeVos rules in Title IX. But these same rights are are afforded to every person, faculty, staff that sets foot on a college, university, or school campus. And I think a lot of times people don't know their rights because Title IX is kind of a little soundbite, but people really don't understand how it applies to them. So seeing all that, I also do my best to teach and educate. And I also work with the Southwest Center for Law and Policy, which I teach at tribal colleges. And Southwest Center for Law and Policy serves to educate and assist Native Americans and Indigenous Alaskan people with sexual assault and sexual abuse. Well, speaking of which, you know, since you alluded to these rule changes, for some of our listeners, over the summer, there's been a back and forth kind of between the governor and the Board of Regents in terms of adopting this new Title IX standard handed down by the Department of Education, which the Department of Education pitches as, uh, in its words, restoring due process to the Title IX process, but it's been criticized by activists and even certain individuals in the UW Board of Regents and the governor for disempowering survivors and potentially chilling reporting. But then eventually in August, the UW system adopted these rule changes under threat of losing funding. So, Could I ask you just your opinions and your thoughts on these changes and kind of which side do you buy more? The Department of Education's framing of these rules as a restoration of due process to Title IX rules, or do you view them more akin to, say, some of their critics that say it's going to disempower survivors? So that's a big question. So Title IX really evolved in 2011. Then Vice President Biden was really instrumental in bringing Title IX to the forefront of universities and colleges, because up until then, it kind of had been in the background. And so what the Obama administration did is they sent out what's known now as the infamous Dear Colleague letter. And it talked to universities and colleges to, this is what you need to do for Title IX. These are things that we think you should do when someone comes in and say they've been sexually discriminated against or violated. These are the things that we believe that Title IX stands for. It was an ongoing discussion and it was left up to interpretation, which is both good and bad. The University of Wisconsin is interesting. and It's one of the universities and institutions in this country where we codify the student discipline. So it takes a legislative action, which is really interesting, 
for our student discipline. The university is not independent. They don't get to say, okay, if you plagiarize on an exam, here's how it's going to go, right? So it takes a lot more effort to comply with these federal rules because the university has to go through this legislative action. So when Betsy DeVos came in, she knew that one of her goals was to change Title IX and make it so that the things that she had been hearing about, which I believe to be, you know, she was listening to the wrong actors. You notice that when someone is falsely accused, it's in the front page of the paper, right? But the hundreds of thousands of people that have been abused and sexually assaulted, that doesn't get on the front page of the paper. It is very rare by all, you know, historians and people that do this research for any kind of crime to be falsely reported. Very rare. It's, I think, is less than 5% of any crime. And that crime is included, which is rape and sexual assault. So she created this whole narrative that people were being falsely accused and they're having these really crazy trials on campuses and put the fear into so many groups. And so she began her uh, movement to, to try and make equal footing for both the accused and the complainant. And so to make it look fair, she put out this long period of comment that people could come forward. And I think, I can't remember where this statistic is, but I think over 90% of the commentary were totally against of what she wanted to do. So now we have a situation which is really odd because what she did is she, I'm going to go back a little bit. Title IX on campuses is not a criminal system. Title IX affords the opportunity for someone that has been wronged under Title IX to come forward and have the person, or sometimes it's more than one person who have wronged them, to be punished by the university. Okay, so the system of um, student misconduct applies to Title IX. People think of this as that we're having trials on campuses, criminal trials, to determine someone's guilt or innocence. But really, the essence of this is that there's a, a standard of evidence that's applied to Title IX, and that standard of evidence has to be applied to the same misconduct. For example, the same example is plagiarism. That standard has always been preponderance of the evidence, which means, you know, if you're looking, you know, you're driving at 50, it's just a hair over 50, meaning it's not a very high standard of evidence, just like um, whatever student misconduct you have, it's the same standard. And applying that, most of these cases for Title IX don't even get to a hearing. And that's true among all college campuses. What usually happens is, you know, they investigate, the, these investigations find that perhaps it did happen. They try to implement some type of a no contact order where you stay away from each other, a, a penalty, a imposition of some kind of punishment from the perpetrator. But honestly, most of the time, a lot of the complainants are students. They don't have time for this. They can't deal with it. They either drop out of school, these things have so profoundly affected them that, it, you know, their grades fail, they, their grades drop. It's really, really difficult to go through these situations. And so from an advocate's perspective, a legal advocate's perspective, I know that we can do so much better with Tide Online and helping victims. And DeVos has now put a huge chilling effect on Title IX. 
what she's done is she's saying, okay, even though this is not what adversaries of Title IX wanted, she's basically set up a court for Title IX where perpetrators are going to come in now and they have the same rights as complainants within the hearing. One of the things you may have heard about is that both parties can cross-examine one another, which makes it really difficult for a complainant to come forward to tell their story in the face of the person that may have really hurt them. And she also put in there that, yes, you must cross-examine one one another, or we're not going to take testimony from the complainant. So we, we won't even use your testimony. So then you don't have a case, right? And the other thing that a lot of universities are left thinking, what does this even mean? That both sides must be provided an advocate to do the cross-examination. Well, what does that mean? So for example, if you have committed a sexual assault, do you get to bring in your dad, who's a criminal lawyer in New York, to cross-examine the complainant? Can you ask your buddy in the frat to cross-examine? And likewise for the complainant. So the universities have interpreted that, oh no, we have to go hire a bunch of lawyers to to take upon this role. And that's just for the cross-examination piece. You don't get to have an attorney to help you from the very beginning where you really need it to understand the process. What does this mean for trying to be a student in school? It's really basically, for lack of other terms, a big hot mess. So to get to (laughs) To get to the other part of your question, as far as the university here at University of Wisconsin, like all universities across the country, I think they feared that they would lose federal funding. I myself have done a lot of um, complaints with the Office of Civil Rights, and I really felt that they're not going to take your funding away. I've never seen it. They threaten it but they're not going to take your federal funding away. And I think it's a, a, a threat that all universities felt they had a duty to fulfill DeVos's rules. So close to an election, I think is almost, for lack of better terms, again, criminal. So confusing. Um, the inability to really straighten out what this all meant, the university felt that their hands were tied and they had to go forward with promulgating these rules. Then here we are with another administration and President-elect Biden, who is at the forefront of Title IX, he says that he wants to come in and remove DeVos's changes. But the problem with that is that she knew what she was doing by promulgating these rules to make it um, where it had to be codified. And that's going to take a while to untangle this, this hot mess that we're in. One thing that I believe that universities and University of Wisconsin-Madison is trying to do is kind of do a parallel system. So where we have these, these rules, so you know, we're doing what we had to do apparently because of DeVos, but at the same time, we're um, surrounding them with rules that make it a little easier to swallow. But honestly, I don't know how this is all going to go. I think that there's still lawsuits out there. I think they're still pending with ACLU and other groups that, you know, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to end. But hopefully, just like a lot of things, you know, the next administration will will do their best to undo what's been done. So that's a long-winded response. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, that is exactly – that was a great answer, uh, your your work is so interesting, and 
I, I wish we weren't running up on time. But before we do run out of time, I, I want to know, and I, I think a lot of students also want to know, what does your everyday work look like? Like, you know, what does your day-to-day job look like as someone yeah. that works really deeply on this? Well, that's it. That's, I, I think um, someone had asked me too about work-life balance. And it's really funny. A, a friend of mine from law school who did take the route of big law firm her and I have always wanted to write a book about women in the law or just, you know, everyone that goes into law and work life and balance. But the sad, pathetic thing is we've started and haven't fit. That's about 10 years ago and haven't had the time to finish it. So someday, maybe one of you will do it. But it's for me, I, I come from a, you know, I feel very privileged to have been able to be at home a lot with my kids. Um, it's it, it's a weird place to be because I I come from a traditional space where I, I married someone who's a physician. And when I was in law school in the 80s, I really, and even into the 90s, I really thought, well, I can have my law career and I can have kids and I can do whatever I, you know, I can do it all. But you see that things, you know, your world begins to suffer a little bit and frustration and it, it gets it gets difficult, but again, I had resources, so I was able to get through it. You know, I, I I'm very lucky um, that I did. But now my kids are grown, and when you say what does my day look like, a day doesn't go by when I try to imagine with the pandemic what it would be if my kids were little. I don't know if I could do it. I it would be really difficult, and. I'm constantly in a state of fantasizing about having a personal assistant, like the celebrities. (laughs) I would love to have a personal assistant because my time is spent trying to put out fires a lot in the legal cases I have. The type of law that I practice is really emotionally demanding, and I have to balance that a lot. There are some days that are really, really hard, and I feel like I haven't given enough attention to my clients, and some days where I feel like my family lacks my attention. I have elderly parents. I have young adult kids. And it really, I, it's hard. I, it's hard to give advice where I am constantly myself struggling about day to day, minute to minute. I just hope that I, you know, every day that goes by, I hope I didn't forget something that that has dire consequences for others. Um, so it's all, all a, a dance and a balance. So, not, so tracking back to some advice that you might have to students, many of whom might be at least flirting with the law school at some point as poli-sci majors, what kind of things did you do or find outside the classroom that ended up helping you in your profession and then on the job market while you were at the UW? And this could be in terms of both organizations and activities or internships? And then even what would you recommend to students to try and pursue? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, When I was an undergraduate here, there were so many things happening. I know the same is true now. I just, I I felt like I just kept falling into things. Um, So I remember as a freshman at that time, there were a lot of things going on like with women's equal rights. And I got involved, I think it was called Take Back the Night. It was a movement. There are a lot, a lot of things that were happening on campus, sexual assaults. And so I knew I had a friend that was assaulted and I went with her 
and got very involved in, in that organization. And that I also was interested at the time, this is a non-existent now, but it was called the nuclear freeze movement. And that was more on a global scale. So in my mind, I thought, okay, I'm interested in local organizing, but I also am also interested in what's happening in the world. So I kind of chose a, a local organizations that I, I thought I was interested in as well as you know, something on a more global scale. And, you know, it was really, it was really fun. I met so many people and, and they may have all been like-minded, but that's okay. When we expanded to organizing outside of, of Madison in this community, I got a taste of the real world. And that was also really important. And I think it's important too, to, I, I also just, I had to work. So I got jobs on campus and really anything that I could find. So it wasn't more of like, I didn't have a lot of ability to find things that would pay me for what I wanted to do at that time. It was more nonprofit work, which was fine. But I think it's important to kind of just, it's such an exploration of, of who you are and kind of coming together with what is it that you ask of yourself to do. I think students today are, you know, riddled with so much stress that I think it's really important to, if you have the time to follow one or two interests that you're, you think you're, is your passion and find out because you can parlay that into what you want to go into, into your career. And there's so many things happening. And unfortunately, the pandemic is, I know, made that list a little bit shorter. But it, And I think especially now it's important because it feels so isolating during this time, but to reach out and get involved in something that I know it's cliche, but just something that you feel inspired by. So, but as far as moving on to law school, it is important to, to, if you're thinking about law school as an undergrad, try to look for things that, you know, have that bent that's going to help make up your mind, Um, whether it's politics or something with even, there's so many opportunities here in Madison with housing or social justice reform in the criminal justice system, anything like that you think that will, you know, try to help you decide about law school, but also hate to be shameless, but law school applications want to see other things than just great grades in the LSAT. They want to see that you do have, you know, some passion for what the law stands for, for you. So it's it's important. Absolutely. I think that that is a great way to end this. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate all the amazing advice that you're able to share today. Oh, well, you're so welcome. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.